0: Teaching them a sprint drill can very easily have no impact on their sprint mechanics, right? I would say, like, generally, it has no impact Mm -hmm. on their sprint mechanics. And so I've kind of moved away from like hoping for that. Like, oh, yeah, we're going to do this B skip, and then now you're going to have swing leg retraction in your sprint. Like, that's not really a big part of my approach anymore. I view them more as, Contributing to your elastic training volume, like, you know, contributing to how many times you're bouncing off the ground in our session.
1: That was Coach Dan Bach. Welcome to another episode of the podcast. Great to have you here. It's great to have Dan back on the show. He is the founder of Jump Science, as well as the creator of the popular Speed Science Zero page on Instagram. He coaches at Acceleration Sports Performance in Austin, Texas, and Dan has been working with athletes in the realm of speed and power development for about a decade and a half. On the show today, Dan will be giving his perspective on how athletes' strengths or weaknesses show up in their sprinting technique. And he'll be talking about his approach to sprint technique given the idea of strength dictating function or the fact that an athlete's innate strength, power development, their structure, how that is going to be inextricably linked to this sporting technique that they will exhibit. Dan will also talk about building elasticity, his use of plyometrics, how he builds up an athlete's vertical force capability, he'll give his take on sprint drills, and so much more. Dan has such a practical and intuitive coaching style where his experimentation is backed up by data and linked to science. I really enjoy talking with Dan about all things training. This conversation was, I've been having some longer talks on this show lately. This one just flew by an hour and 40 minutes. I know you guys will enjoy this one, and uh, let's get on to the show. Before we get to it, just quickly, our sponsors for the show, appreciate you guys taking the time to listen to these as they are an important part of bringing the show to you every week. First, we have LostEmpireHerbs.com for 15% off your Lost Empire Herbs order. Head to LostEmpireHerbs.com slash justfly. There you can find my favorite go-to herbs that I've been using ever since I got Lost Empire Herb CEO Logan Christopher on the show. I've been using his mental training techniques and having good success there. But then I also got into his herbalism. The Phoenix formula was the first one I tried out, it was amazing. You'll see that on that page. Shiliagit resin, that's a really popular one in strength and conditioning circles. Heck, I even buy their soap. It's like pine pollen soap. It's amazing. <laughs> I would definitely recommend that. I don't think that's on my little personal page there, but they have so much cool stuff. If you want a more natural approach to your supplementation, Lost Empire Herbs is the way to go. So, check them out at lostempireherbs.com/justfly. Second is simplyfaster.com. They're a longtime sponsor of this show. If you have any sports training, sports data needs, their shop is an invaluable resource for you. So, within data tracking, you have things like the free lap timing system, bar speed velocity monitors, force plates, You also have training tools like the K-Box, blood flow restriction bands, which have been a mainstay for me. You also have slide boards like the Burn Board, that's a new item that's shown up in their store, and so much more. They have amazing customer service, and I'm really happy to have them as a sponsor of this show. Lastly, before we get started, I wanted to mention the Elastic Essentials online course. I'm sure if you've been around this podcast, you've heard of it. It is the lens, it is the window into how I view the process of training athletes how I view the process from the foot upwards, how I look at plyometrics, speed, robustness and movement, strength and power development, as well as programming. It'll also get you CEUs for the NSCA, NASM, and more. If you want to check that out, head to justflysports.com and you can get started on that today. All right, that all being said, let's get to this uninterrupted episode with coach Dan Bach. Dan, welcome back to the show. It's awesome to have you here, man.
0: Yeah, thanks. Looking forward to talking about some stuff.
1: Yeah, you know, we both kind of I think we started kind of on the same path in that we started much more in jumping, relatively speaking, than than sprinting. And then yes. here we are both now, probably I, I don't know if you're more in sprinting now, but I would say in the balance of things, I probably spend more time in sprinting than I do jumping. So it's just tell me a little bit about your journey. Like obviously dunking initially, and then as you got into the performance world, tell me a little bit about how speed. Or how you see the balance of those things, what we talk about on social media, what training looks like, and how have you evolved with that?
0: Yeah, so I would say first, you know, I started out training with, uh, or like training people to jump higher. And then there was a time late in college where I got a chance to work with a couple track athletes and sort of dip my toes into the speed development realm. And uh, at that point, my speed training ability was basically like well i know that they still need to get stronger and then i know that there's going to be sort of this also this separation between strength and speed that we have to balance and um just kind of going on those principles i had some good success with a couple people and uh and i really enjoyed that and and the idea of track appealed to me because it's a sport that's committed to athletic development you know rather than just like oh we got to learn plays and learn a jump shot and, and, you know, do all this conditioning or whatever, uh, like in team sports. So the sport appealed to me. And I um, was able to then get involved with my the track team at my high school for a year after college. And then when I got the opportunity to work at this place called Acceleration in Austin, Texas, um, that's a place that's known for speed training. And, you know, we work with like football and track are probably the two biggest sports, along with, yeah, I mean, soccer, lacrosse, uh, softball, you know, all these sports where acceleration and speed are, are paramount. So, you know, making the shift to coaching and acceleration, that really took me to a place where the, the work I was doing with people in person was actually largely, largely speed focused rather than jump focused. Then I still was. Or I still I am kind of like the jump guy there. So I have, you know, basketball players, volleyball players, but even with them, you know, they obviously jump a ton already, or, you know, a lot of them do. If they don't, I encourage them to, like the basketball guys I'm talking about, like not all of them necessarily spend time dunking or trying to dunk. And so I'll tell them, you know, especially like got a young 14 year old kid or something. I'll be like, do you ever just like, you know, try to dunk on a low rim? And I'll tell them, do that if you're not. But then even with those athletes, I, I like to use, you know, complementary plyometrics and max velocity sprinting is, you know, one of the first ones I want to implement. So even with those jumping athletes, I'm, I'm using speed training. And as part of that, you know, on the, on the social media front, the, the content front, I just have so much to say about speed and, and sprint mechanics and training for it. And I see so many things that I like want to push back on in the speed training realm and so that has just stimulated this uh you know this desire to like okay let's try to you know one figure these things out to bring some clarity to some topics where people are confused three tear down some maybe some misconceptions or some traditions that you know or maybe like a little bit uh, that i question so yeah there's just a lot of just a lot of exploration, a lot of things to say in the speed realm. And then also just the, I think people largely are not developing speed that successfully. If you look across athletes in a lot of sports, like how many are actually making their 40 faster year in, year out? How many are actually getting their fly time faster year in, year out? You know, and and I'm not trying to criticize the field. It's actually just a hard thing to do. You know, Mm -hmm. like speed's not easy to develop. There's a reason most athletes can't run sub 11 seconds in 100 meters. You know, um, it's just not easy to do. And so, with that, yeah, it's like I have, I have a desire to learn how to do it. And and if I have success with an athlete, I want to show it. You know, and I want to say this is how we did it. So yeah, that's how I've kind of ended up in this place where I have Jump Science is like you know it's my brand. It's been been around for a long time, but now I have this whole. You know, I made a new Instagram account just for speed stuff because I wanted to have a place, uh, an outlet for that. So, yeah, that's how I have kind of ended up where I'm at now. And, yeah, so the, the jumping is still big, like, as far as social media, it's like I have a program and, you know, have junkers who are trying to jump higher. Uh, but the stuff I do in person is, yeah, actually more, more speed focused. So, yeah, that's my, that's my evolution in that department.
1: Yeah, it's kind of like what you were saying before you had pushed your cord. It's like the, it's like if you watch the ESPN top ten, it's like the dunks. You know, it's almost like you can't deny there's an undeniability about watching someone jump and do like a, you know, Zion's windmill at the end of the game, right? Like the defiant, yeah, windmill. Yeah. like that's like a, it's such an exclamation point. But then when you actually get in the field it's mostly just speed. It's almost like jumping is nice and it's like a highlight and it's fun. And not that it's not, obvious. obviously if I'm in a jumping sport and just for the sake of being a better, more powerful athlete, that's really important. Mm -hmm. But it's almost like you get in the field and there's almost like something visceral about speed. Like how many people start fights on social media about jump mechanics? I mean, a few, (laughs) but but there's way (laughs) more fights about speed training. I mean, it's not even close. (laughs) Or arguments about studies and all that stuff. I mean, how many people are, to my knowledge, there's never that many people arguing like a high jump mechanic study or a long jump or, you know, anything like that. And I always feel like too, it, maybe there's even something like visceral, like when you're growing up, like the person who could jump high, like that's cool. But it's like when you got burned on the playground in like football, like that's like visceral, like, oh, like how can I, right. you know, I feel like that sticks with people. And obviously it's important for sport, but I think we all kind of remember that from when we were young too, you know, for those of us who yes, always wanted to get sure. faster. So, man, I got I got so much to yeah. I was going to say too, and part of that question stemmed from yeah. You created a whole n- new account just for speed, like moving from yeah, jump to to speed. And so, it's just it's always cool to watch those posts and see what you're up to and how you're evolving your coaching. I wanted to start before we get into some more nitty gritty stuff because I brought this story up. I referenced you in a podcast with Jared Burton recently, and it was on like you know high high volume type training concepts, and it was a guy who. I mean, lots of people might do too much strength, not enough speed and power, and then get faster. But it was an athlete who had been watching your stuff, got a lot faster, and did a bunch of like single leg bounds or something like that. I, I'm curious to hear that story from your the actual person who told the story. Do we need to kick it all off with that and uh, to tell that story a little bit? Some things that you think are interesting within that scope.
0: Yeah. So uh, this was just a guy that I didn't coach personally. He was just a you know a follower on YouTube. And he, um, he shared with me that he had been watching some of my content and where I had talked about how there's, you know, a separation between being strong and being fast. And if you find that you are getting stronger and not getting faster then you know, there's maybe a strategy you can use where you, you know, reduce or eliminate strength training largely. And then, you know. Like, just kind of training at the fast end of the spectrum. And uh, in particular, he saw a video of mine where I, I posted an a athlete that I was working with who was, he was only a 16 year old, he was a sophomore in high school. He was doing some, some uh, repetitive hops on one leg and he looked, looked very springy while doing it, right? He was like quick off the ground. And so, and he was the only athlete I've coached in person who had a, a 2.0 uh, one leg RSI. So, like, while doing that exercise, he was in the air for twice as long as he was on the ground. So he saw that kid doing that exercise, and he went and tried it. And this was a, a football guy who's in his, like, early 20s. So he's a football guy, and he went and tried to do that exercise, and he was like, I was so bad at it. You know, I was really slow off the ground. So I realized that I was strong but not powerful. Or, or you know, some, he used some phrase like that, strong but not something, or strong but not explosive, yeah, one, you know, something like that. And so he stopped strength training and he started working on that exercise specifically. I guess almost every day is what he said, which is not <laughs> something I would actually recommend because it's like a high intense pile. And then he, you know, when he was telling me about this, it was actually after the fact. He had already taken the strategy, done it for uh, six weeks, I think, and his uh, his forty had gotten dramatically faster from a like a four eight to a four four and this was laser measured at a combine hmm. so not you know just like he hand timed himself faster or whatever it was th- there was actually like online results posted of these two combines he sent me the two the two spreadsheets from the two days and sure enough it was like you know I was like a 486 or something and it was like a 448 <laughs> so he had this you know over the course of a couple months he had this pretty significant transformation in the the speed department and um yeah, so that was a cool story to hear from him, but it, it reflects sort of a theme that I, uh, throughout my career, of using, yeah, using that strategy of recognizing there's a big gap between squat strength and, or even, you know, power clean strength versus your speed and understanding that gap exists and then, you know, planning or uh, adjusting your, your training based on your results in those two areas. So, yeah, if you, you know, add 30 pounds to your power clean and you're not sprinting any faster, there's probably some potential there for you to get faster if you stop trying to get stronger and let yourself, you know, specifically adapt to the speed and the spectrum. So I use the term shift a lot, like your body shifts from being strong to being fast or maybe even just from being, uh, you know, sort of evenly developed to being like specifically developed. Uh, So, yeah, I've got, you know, lots of cases of that throughout my coaching career of, you hope it's a short-term thing where it's like, you just have this little bit of, you know, you just get a little bit of separation and between those two things. And so then you sort of shift back to the speed, but also the cases of football guys who have been lifting probably too much for years and they're, you know, average or even slow in the speed department. And then they benefit from six months without squatting (laughs) and you don't, you know, you don't want that scenario. Like, I'm not going to like, I'm not going to utilize that scenario on purpose. Like, Oh yeah, let's just get really strong for eight months, ignore your speed and then see what we can bring back after that. You know, that's not what I want to do, but sometimes people come to me and they're in that situation, you know? And so, yeah, it's just, that was a, a particularly dramatic example, I would say of that concept of shifting from just being strong to being fast.
1: I would say too. Well, one thing I was going to ask you, yeah, with like the, the guy was doing it like every day and I was talking about this idea in Jared's podcast. It's like if it, that was me as well and it was before the fact, right? If the, the guy came to me before and's like, hey, I, I like this hopping exercise. I'd be like, oh yeah, maybe like twice a week, you know, something like that, right? To yeah. Be, <laughs> but I, I wonder sometimes like if someone's so driven on that, they're so sold on it, if I would actually by telling them that again, it's not something like now I I still wouldn't have my athletes do that like every day, but it does. Do you ever think about that sometimes though, with like, if someone's so sold on it and there isn't that like any nocebo there being able to tolerate some of that more high volume type plyo for that kind of thing?
0: Yeah, I I do think about that. And it's not that it's not going to be good for them performance wise. It's just you, you wonder about their shin splints or their knees or, you know, whatever. It's the durability factor. Yeah. Yeah.
1: You give, give 20 athletes that and not all 20 are going to make it th- through.
0: <laughs> 100% right. A hundred percent. So that's, what, that's sure. what concerns me. But yeah, I mean, I think back to, you know, my days or like a lot of people's days when they're getting into dunking. You dunk every day. Yep. And you don't, and you don't think about it. And yeah, when you're, you know, maybe younger than 15, like you can definitely do that. Once you get, well, in my case, you know, I was six, three, 200 pounds as a 16 year old. At that point, it's probably ill advised to dunk every day or to do single leg bounds every day. But then, yeah, the other thing, though, is you think about him being a football guy. And I would, I would think about this too with some of the guys I've worked with. And if, if you do have a bunch of squat strength built up, that does give you some level of durability. Mm-hmm. Where, like, I, I know, like, I've had guys where, you know, they'll sprint. They'll, like, play pickup basketball. They'll, yeah, do whatever random jumping exercises they want to do, and they'll do that most days of the week, and, like, they're fine, you know? And it's still probably not ideal for performance because you're not going to be as fresh as you could be most of the time. But, yeah, but, you know, there's also that component of, you know what, if you you can make it through this healthy, come out the other side, and then maybe get some rest – it's probably going to have a really good impact. Yeah. It still wouldn't be my prescription for somebody, but only like mostly just because of the the health risks. Yeah. Yeah.
1: (laughs) yeah. I was like, yeah. And then next week, everybody's getting the the five. I I remember, uh, yeah, for me, I, (laughs) I did, um, it was in my late twenties. I did like a depth jump every day experience, which is bilateral. You know, it's different. It's actually honestly not even as intense cuz the single yeah, leg bounding yes. too that was like kind of a knee tuck like you you would i think the hopping was not just a, like a low level rudiment it was like a the knee bounces up after each so it was like a pretty a more intense yeah, yeah. version
0: yeah it was not like warm up hopping <laughs> no <for sure. laughs>
1: yeah um but it's, i was going to say too well i'll just just quickly with the depth jump like i i found like and i was in a place where i was highly trained as well i'm glad you mentioned that too because if you just gave that to anybody who didn't have that bank of robustness built up they could end much more poorly. Right. Maybe some people do would survive it, but having that bank of robustness a better position. And I, I did a depth jump every day and I found after one week of the depth jump every day thing, my vertical actually had gone up in that short term, like three inches. It wasn't my all time best. Oh, I believe that. But it was like a blast. And it was like really cool. But I found after this the second week of doing that, because like, oh, this is good. I'll keep going. I think mm-hmm. I was about the same. So it was almost like it took everything I already had and it just expressed it really 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 well and you would figure maybe that football right. player i think that guy was super strong too like really big squat to body weight and just like already had it but it was able to just to keep expressing it really well expressing it really well shoot i i almost really now i'm talking about it i kind of want to do that the <laughs> single leg bound every day just to see what happens and and the the other weeks of that but um yeah it's it's really an interesting thing i want to i wrote this down uh, Dan, as you were talking, and it wasn't on the question list, but I want to ask because you yeah. said single leg RSI. I haven't heard too many people. Rich, who who created the plyo mat, uh, has talked about that. They that's something they measure. Is single leg. We talked about double leg RSI last time, but yep. uh, Rich had said that the single leg seemed to be way more trans. You know, like you got standing vert, maybe a little bit lower transference RSI, maybe a little higher. But I think from what Rich was saying, he he liked the single leg RSI more. Like he felt like that was the most applicable. I'm curious what your experience with testing and and noticing trends with that is.
0: Yeah, so I don't test it a lot just because most athletes aren't that good at the exercise. Yeah. And I can, I do more of a subjective evaluation.
1: Yeah, I hear that. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, it's like Um, you could tell pretty quick if you say, hey, do some single leg bounds and see if you can get your knee up on each one. You could tell pretty quick.
0: Yes, and I'll do things like, Okay, so we're gonna do the hop, you know, the the hops with the tuck, so you're pulling the foot up. Um, but then we're gonna move forward and okay, so this first time, let's move forward, just get like five yards and five. So it's you know, you're not moving far at all. And then okay, now let's try to just push it out to six or seven yards and five, you know, seven or eight yards and five. Let's can you get out to ten yards and five. And even just moving at like walking or like slow jogging speed through those. It requires you to get off the ground faster, so I'll, I'll even use that as a way of kind of evaluating how how good they are at it. Yeah, I haven't done a lot of the one leg RSI. It's only a, like only a handful of athletes that I that are good at the exercise where I've actually used that. So then I can't, I don't have a bunch of data to like connect it to sprinting compared to two leg RSI. Um, I will say the ones I have that are good at it, like they are good sprinters. One of them is actually a volleyball player. And hmm. so she doesn't train sprinting except a little bit with me. So she hasn't really had a chance to find out how good she could be a sprinter. But, uh, yeah, it is definitely, you know, there's definitely a connection between those things. Uh, the single leg RSI and sprint speed. It is interesting though, because I think, you know, being on one leg, it actually is more strength-based than your two-leg RSI.
1: Yep. Yeah, I would agree, actually. I have have a story about that, but I would agree with you.
0: Because you're basically, you have a much higher load than you do, you know, much higher load per leg, so, you know, like double the load. So, yeah, you could theorize, actually, that the two-leg RSI would be more connected, but obviously, there's the specificity component of the single leg and, like, with the cycle action and everything. So, um, yeah, I don't have anything definitive to say on on the comparison of those
1: two. Yeah, t- it's just strike. I, my story is I. This is just an end of one with me. So, because I actually stopped doing <laughs> this exercise as much. With I, I don't use like I used to do a lot of si- a single leg depth jumps personally. I don't use a single okay. leg depth jump as much. If it's like a track, like a high jumper specific, I would be more inclined. But most athletes, I just, I'm more concerned with a lot of other things that are lower on the totem pole. (laughs) And even the single leg, I will revert to a more like, let's be fast off the ground uh, first way more than I would say, hey, let's do this single leg depth jump. I found when I was in high school, I was doing the science of jumping program, you know, it was real big 20 years ago. And single leg depth jumps were one of the things. And I think once I kind of started to get creative with that program, I found that if it was three days after I bit, I did a bunch of like single leg depth jumps, which honestly the ground contact, I bet you was like 0.4 on those. At le- like it was long, oh, yeah. it was long, but my two yes. leg jumps would be amazing. Like I go to pick open gyms and my double leg jumps would be awesome, but my single leg would be kind of like meh. And I found like <laughs> it was more the double leg quick off the ground seemed to be better for the single leg jumping. So, but I think, yeah, with the sprinting, I think there's, there's probably more at play too than just, than maybe just what we that just one variable too it is one leg but it yeah. also could be quick contact a lot of things
0: right yeah a lot of things to consider there but both are good good things to look at for sure yeah like i want one, one and two leg rsi
1: yeah i i get what you said too with the uh, a lot of it i think is ease of measurement like i because i'm kind of the same way just how good do you look hopping on one leg or yes. like, like and like you said like all right now let's make it horizontal maybe even doing just like a Hey, you get a five yard run in and then take three bounds on your left or something like that. If you can right. do that well, you're probably have a pretty good single leg RSI, I'd imagine for the most part. Yeah.
0: Yeah. The hops for distance is another test I do, but again, so that's a, uh, it's a hard exercise that can get very sloppy. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um. So, so even with that one, I tend to stay at, okay, well, let's do Maybe 90% of the distance you could do, but like keep it smooth and and bouncing off the ground as opposed to, you know, these just hard like slapping the ground, like collapsing on each one, but sort of just finding a way to manufacture distance. Yeah. So even though I I only do the, the actual distance with some athletes versus just trying to get quality hops moving forward and then just, yeah, maintaining some. A certain level of like posture and and springiness. Yeah, I'm sure you've seen how you go from max distance on one leg. It can get, it can turn into some, some things that are not necessarily really evaluating like reactive abilities anymore.
1: I would say you're more you're more assessing pure robustness because the positions some kids get into are so bad trying to do that. Yeah. You're like, hey, you're <laughs> staying healthy and your knee went that way. And to get this, I know exactly what you're saying. In fact, me saying that probably reflects more of the track hat. Like, yeah, if I'm working with like high school or college jumpers, they make that look pretty good. And they are using yes. lower leg elasticity. If I ask your average 16 year old who walks in the gym to say, hey, run five yards and then give me three bounds it is going to be like slap and then like a weird soccer kick to go forward slaps, you know? So exactly. I'm glad you did say that. I do think there's a level where it's kind of like a gray sliding scale of how fast I can actually get going and still utilize a good single leg spring.
0: Yes, for sure. Yeah. I uh, I tend to do like the one step approach even.
1: Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I think that's a good place. place. (laughs) Yeah. There's a lot that could go wrong with you. Give it average, you know, not track jumper you know, five yards to right. get started. Uh, okay. Right. So, all right. So let's get more into, and I'm sure we'll talk about jumping stuff and plyo stuff as we go on. But, and I, I forgot to put this in the question list. So I'm going to go now, but I can't believe I forgot this one. Literally when I was thinking about these uh, throughout the last week, like this was like the first one because you had posted on this is basically what you think about sprint drills, which I think, you know, I think people have been listening to this show yeah. will probably, they already know what's coming with that. But just from like the level of like an extensive plyometric too, because I think that, you know what you said about sprint drills and the relationship to like maybe just being extensive plyometric. Anyways, without saying any more about that, uh, tell me a little bit about your thoughts on sprint drills and then and then the relationship to actual mechanics and then also as a plyometric.
0: Yeah. So, you know, I think the uh, the idea with sprint drills is you're taking you know some component of sprint technique and then practicing it in like a you know a form that's easier to execute the technique, you know, whether that be some type of cycle or just, a, uh, you know, uh, picking the foot up high or whatever, or, you know, not butt kicking, but, you know, being front side or whatever, you know, that's sort of the, the typical idea behind sprint drills. And so they're used to teach technique. You know, my experience with them is, and keep in mind, I work with, you know, middle school and up athletes. So some young kids teaching them a sprint drill can very easily have no impact on their sprint mechanics, right? I would say, like, generally, it has no impact Mm -hmm. on their sprint mechanics. And so I've kind of moved away from, like, hoping for that. Like, oh, yeah, we're going to do this B-skip, and then now you're going to have swing leg retraction in your sprint. Like, that's not really a big part of my approach anymore. I view them more as contributing to your elastic training volume, like, you know, contributing to how many times you're bouncing off the ground in our session. And, and with that in mind, that, you know, that cuts down a lot of the drills that I use, because not all of them are that bouncy or that fast off the ground. So, you know, like the two, the two main ones that I use are just like a, you know, your track style butt kick where you're picking the foot up underneath the hip. I just call it the high feet drill. Now, now mm, it is. I like that. Um, and, and it's just like, you know, nice quick tempo. So you're being fast off the ground and then you add speed to that progressively. You know, once an athlete can do it reasonably, you start trying to add horizontal speed to it. And it sort of turns into a sprint stride as you add speed to it. And that's, uh, it's a warm up drill. It's, Getting foot contacts in, you know, probably every time you do the drill, you're getting another 20 foot contacts in. And then that one I will use as a way to try to plug into sprint mechanics a little bit, not necessarily with every athlete. Like it doesn't Mm. really connect for everybody, but sometimes, you know, like particularly your team sport athletes that don't really have max velocity experience, they can benefit from that okay, just, you need to make sure you have high feet in your sprint. So we're going to do this drill. You're going to add speed to it. And then basically if you add enough speed to it, you're going to end up sprinting the way we want you to sprint. Yeah. The knees will come up and, as
1: you add speed, you know, according. Yeah.
0: And that, and, and, and as you add speed or as you get into your sprint, like it is going to turn into more of a backside butt kick than, than the drill is. Um, but that's good. We want, we want high feet, even if it's backside, right? Mm-hmm. Bigger. Wheel. Um, yeah. And so, and so, yeah, the you know, you basketball, football, lacrosse type of athletes, like they they can benefit from that. But the other, the the big thing for me is that it's all experimental. It's not this black and white thing, like oh, if you learn this drill, you will run this way and it will be faster. It's you know, we can we can explore this, see what happens. Maybe it is just a warm up for us. Maybe it is something that we try to plug in on the track in a sprint, and it could actually help you. But which one of those things it's going to be, I don't really know. Yeah, and I'm not gonna I'm not gonna pretend that I do know. And I'm not gonna be like, oh, do this drill to take uh, two tenths off your forty. Like, no, that that like the the classic Instagram post, you know, uh, to to get get a bunch of attention. I'm not gonna make that post. I'm not. It's just not a just not a black and white thing oh, we learned this drill, now we're going to sprint faster. So, yeah. Oh, and then the other thing is, you know, there's so many drills out there. And if there is some value in learning technique, it's highly individual to the, to the athlete. You know, one drill could make something quick for an athlete, and it could be completely worthless for another one. So it's not like, oh, yeah, let's be skips just make everyone faster. No, I mean, they could, in theory, have some role for some athlete. Again, you don't know. You can try it. And I got nothing wrong with anybody trying any drill, you know, like, because I get people asking me, hey, is this a good drill? Well, I don't know, try it. You know, a learning process is not a, not a consistent thing across all people. So there's just no way to be like, oh yeah, this is a good drill. And this is not a good drill. You just don't know. It's just, you can try it. And you know, there's nothing wrong with trying it. But yeah, I mean overall, I'm pretty skeptical on drills like changing sprint technique and actually making people faster. I really, you know, generally am using them more for yeah, the elastic training volume and it's part of the warm-up process. Yeah. So like stiff leg, stiff leg running or stiff leg bounding is kind of my other go-to drill. But that's just like a fun, a fun athletic thing to do, you know? Mm-hmm. And I I don't often Try to connect that to sprint mechanics. I, I'll have people do it in their warm up and be like, "Oh, let, you know, let's cover twenty yards in, in ten bounds, or you know, for are athletic like ten yards or twenty yards in eight bounds, uh, you know, stiff leg bounds." But I'm not like, okay, so now remember that that uh, scissoring action that you did in the bound. Now let's go put that into your sprint, like, and feel the. You know, like that's not really a, a thing I talk about ever anymore. So yeah, I don't necessarily treat it as a speed drill so much as just a, a fun warm up and a fun way to get elastic, elastic work in.
1: I love that. Uh, there's some things you said. I was like nodding my head like a bunch and I wrote like three things down. Yeah. One thing was so cool. It's like, it's hoping for transfer. I think that's kind of where we all start. It's like, we do all these drills that we've been taught or everybody did. And you eventually are like, oh, I know this is going to transfer some point. Eventually you're going to start looking like this. You know, it's at that hoping mm. that eventually if you do enough of them, But it's like it's it's just crazy to me. There's like so many videos I'll watch where athletes do all that stuff. They do all the drills, and they're clearly pretty good at them. And then they go sprint and look nothing like it. And and I always wonder what their (laughs) coach is thinking. Like, are they thinking, oh, if they just keep doing some more? I think a lot of coaches, honestly, I think it's almost a good. Maybe it's by um, design or people almost learn to just forget about it. You know, like just go sprint and maybe I remember I was kind of like that when I was coaching at Wilmington College in my mid twenties. We did all the drills and like. I was always telling them, at least for the drills, I was always you know, saying, "Oh, posture and get your knees up or toes up or whatever. And then I don't remember at that time ever really making a big deal of how they actually sprinted though. And I think right. that was for the best, honestly. And I even remember when I was in college, we did all the A's and B's and all that stuff. And I was, you know, I was the person who's going to try hard. I want to do this right. But I don't ever uh-huh. remember. My coaches never, and I'm actually very thankful for this, is I don't ever remember sprinting trying to think about that. And I remember how I sprinted when I was, I was not fast when I was in college. I was a high jumper first because I wasn't fast. And then triple jumper second, because you could still get away with not being super fast. Long jump was my worst jump (laughs) because, but I still ran, you know, I could still hit like 16 high, 17 low a 150, which isn't great, but that's still decent. And I remember when I ran, like was running that like my knees were, it was a fast stride cadence. My knees were low-ish. Like I did not run like the high knee glide at all. And I didn't even think about right. it. And I didn't start to think about it till my mid twenties when I was coaching. And I, I was like, I was like, you. I started with more jumping and then, oh, I'm, now I'm coaching speed. I got to learn about it. And as I'm learning, I'm like watching all these videos, trying to run just like they tell you. And my athletes would be like, oh, a coach has got great sprint technique. And then I like run a 150 <laughs> with my athletes and they Blow my doors off, running with right, low right. knees, like all the stuff, like you know, i like, and so you know, you you sit and you think about that, and you're like, where is it? you know, it just it starts those seeds of like, oh, maybe that isn't going to eventually transfer, or maybe I could, but at the same time, I like what you said with like it's it offers like an extensive plyo warm up value because I think at the same time, if you just totally eliminate it, well, you know, you are getting like a lot of bouncy plyo contacts, and if you just And athletes like doing them. I mean, they are like, you know, cross connecting gate and there's bounce and I think there's value there. So it's like to totally throw them away. It's just don't try too hard with them, you know, and yeah, go to that mentality.
0: Yeah. And I I think, you know, another theory you could have is like, if there is going to be transfer, it's going to be subconscious. Yeah. Yep. Yep. You know, where, okay. Like, well, we picked our knees up in dorsiflex like so many million times over the course of 10 years. Now it actually, there is actually maybe some little transfer to sprinting, but it's not because we thought about trying to do it during sprinting. It's just like built in now. That's another theory you could have. I don't necessarily subscribe to that too much, but yeah, I mean, you know, you could, you could have different theories about the transfer, but yeah, I think you, you made a great point about the thinking during sprinting and trying to do it. I mean, if anything, it's a very small piece of the training process. Yeah.
1: Yeah. With that, I I feel like the only part could maybe be if it's a lot of like single leg, like bouncy stuff, maybe that foot ankle complex gets a little stiffer as a result of that over a long period of time. Right. Maybe it's physical development. Yeah. Maybe. And it's the physical that maybe ends up the body uses that physical, but I don't think anything technical about moving one meter a second. Is going to really show up in a wheel? It's not a wheel. Sprint rolls right. are not a wheel. <laughs> it's just like, and I think that people don't. It's just like this easily controllable thing. Like you said, you can see it, and I can tell anybody to put their knee up and toe up, and I feel like I'm coaching them. But then it's mm-hmm. like, oh wait, they didn't run like that. And so uh, you know, I like yeah. uh, you mentioned. I, I love that you said this. You mentioned it is an experiment, and I think it, because people don't like that, they want to go to a seminar or a coaching clinic, and they don't want to come away with experiments in their head. And I was just doing a seminar this weekend and I'm taking people through acceleration constraints, I'll call it. I like thinking about like the Bonder Chuck pyramid. Like at the top, you have actual sprinting, actual jumping, whatever. At the bottom of the pyramid is just all the general stuff, like leg twists and arm curls and calf raises or whatever. And then yeah. the second layer is, it's the SDE. I almost like, and the, the third is SP, but the SDE is like that special strength. That's like maybe the that's the, the very close sprint constraints. You could say maybe it's pulling a sled. Of course, you might say that's actually yeah. the main thing, but stuff that's really close. It's still a wheel and we're going through some of these different constraints, like different falling starts, different versions of sled drag with like a shin drop. But after each one, I would look at the group and I would say, hey, thumbs up or thumbs down somewhere on that. How helpful was that? Because we would actually sprint after. How helpful yeah. was that? How much did you feel that show up in your sprinting? And it's like, that's kind of how it should be though. I have this realization. That is how it should be. Not everything. If, if you just go and say every single thing transfers 100%, you're living in a dream world that you kind of manufactured. And it takes the fun away to be honest. Like part of the fun of coaching is looking that everyone is different. And even in like Bondartuck's system, like I'm sure every thrower had a different set of like special exercises that worked that they liked the most. Like, Hey, this guy likes yeah. heavy wines. You know, heavy like forty pound hammer wines. This guy likes this kind of like sandbag throw or something the most. And right. there's just these different. To me, that's the fun of it. So I like that you said that. It's like it's almost like getting the sprint drills to transfer. It's almost like taking the thing at the bottom of the pyramid, the the ge, the general. Like the leg mm-hmm. twist and trying to make that like the thing, the lock that's going to get <laughs> you there, you know. So I, that's what right. came across my head as you were talking about that. Because the experiment thing, I think more people. And the last thing I'll just say is, I think that it does frustrate people if the coach just says, "Oh, well, it just depends," and, and but they don't offer any like guidance. You know what I'm saying? That will is kind of frustrating to say. Well, I, where am I supposed to go? Give me something, you know. Like so, I just think people. Mm-hmm. That's an easy thing to also frustrate people without offering any uh, like crumbs that say, hey, well, here are some, um, you could say SDEs, here are some constraints I really like. And this constraint works for this type of person. This one works for this type of person more. But it's at the end of the day, yes. it is complex. And that's, I think that's the beauty of it.
0: Yes. Every, every person is a new puzzle to solve. And uh, yeah, that's part of, the, part of the fun of coaching and especially the fun of, of having success it's because it's like, oh, well, this wasn't just a, a blueprint that I used with this person, you know? Like I actually solved some some things along the way, and I had some ideas, and I evaluated those ideas, and the, you know these couple ideas worked out, and that's like that's awesome, that's fun experience to go through, rather than, well, here's my list of drills, <laughs> and that we just did them, and you know they worked or didn't work, or whatever. Yeah,
1: yeah, it's it definitely I think. At some point, you would get bored if it was literally just "let's do A B C skips" and that will be the magic path that we just keep doing. No, just keep doing them. Just keep doing them. You're eventually going to get there. Just keep going. And I I mean, not to not to down to put down like the need for repetition in things. Like I think doing simple things very savagely well over time is critical. But it's more. There's just more to it than just do this one thing. And now this insanely complex human skill of sprinting will be yours. You
0: know, (laughs) right, right. (laughs)
1: Dan, you had an awesome post on your, your speed Instagram. I, I love this. And, and I think it was selling. if you read the comments, you saw how many coaches intuitively connected with it. And you were talking about, mm-hmm. and I'll put this in the show notes. And, and you know, if you want to further that post, but it was basically, it showed two different uh, stick figures of sprinters. And one of them had the foot landing at a—it was like maybe six inches or eight inches in front of the hip landing, like a small strike width underneath. So the foot, fifteen centimeters is what
0: it was. Yeah,
1: fifteen. Yeah, fifteen centimeters underneath. So not quite as far in front. Another sprinter struck their leg further in front and used more of the ground. Their foot was on the ground longer in their sprint stride. And you had said that rather than thinking of it in the sense of oh this one's wrong, more think of it as how is this athlete solving the problem of sprinting as fast as possible? And so, could you go into the difference? Uh, you know the numbers. Uh, I don't have the numbers in my head in front of me. I don't want to butcher any of those. So, could you go into those two examples and that post yours as to how these athletes are differently solving the problem of sprinting as fast as possible?
0: Yeah. Okay. So, huge topic. And I would say… Just bear with me. It's probably going to be a long-winded answer. That's okay. This this, um, one bears
1: a, this one needs a long-winded answer, so no problem. Yeah.
0: So, first of all, I would say, you know, we have this, uh, this concept of, like, different perspectives and different, you know, different things to consider when it comes to, uh, let's say, solving a problem or even, like, uh, resolving a debate, let's say. So, an example comes to mind of, like, an ethical debate, right, of... Okay, I have this principle that I don't want to hurt people. Okay, and that's that's a principle that I follow. And you know, that informs my decisions. Okay. Well, what if you have children and someone's invading your home? You know, isn't there like another ethic that comes to mind there? You know, is isn't there something else you have to consider in that situation? Right? And that might very that very well may get you to compromise your principle of not harming people. Right? You know, there's like a different ethic that sort of takes precedence over this one. And, and, you know, obviously there's a million examples of that type of thing. So in sprint mechanics, I would say that your traditional technique model has, you know, it's, it's basically based on one thing. And that's sort of this like common sense idea or, you know, seemingly common sense idea that if we're trying to sprint forward, then we don't want to push backward right? Or we we want to push backward like as little as possible. And the entire sprinting technical model is basically just based on that. And it's like, yeah, okay, I mean, that makes sense at some level. However, there's another perspective, there's something else we need to consider. And if we look at the physics of sprinting, you're going to find that, you know, the horizontal demands of sprinting are not what limit your speed. Okay, so I can, let's say, you know, someone's top speed or, you know, let's say my top speed is 10 meters per second. I can overcome the air resistance to get to 11. Like air resistance isn't stopping me. And also, if I have braking force in the initial touchdown, I can also overcome that by pushing behind me more easily enough. Like the horizontal demands are not what's preventing me from going past 10 meters per second. It's the vertical demands. It's being able to overcome gravity fast enough so that I can move over the ground at this speed and stay on my feet, okay? And that is, I mean, I would say it makes sense in theory. It also is supported by research, right? All, all the research we have about, you know, the vertical spike and ground force. And, you know, it's like it's a pretty… Um, you know, direct connection where it is you are able to create higher force relative to your body weight within a shorter time frame, that allows you to move over the ground faster. And, and if you want to prove it to yourself, I mean, it's the, like, the overspeed concept, right? Like, okay, if you, somebody pulls you with a car at a some speed, you know, you get past your top speed, you're not going to be able to stay on your feet anymore. Even though you have all the horizontal force you could ask for from a car pulling you, right? You're still going to fall. So the horizontal force is not what's going to help you run faster it's actually your ability to overcome gravity like fast enough. Okay so if we view sprint mechanics in that lens then we see that contact distance so the uh, the amount of distance that your center of mass covers while your foot is on the ground or you could think of it as like how far your foot strikes in front of you plus how far you push off behind you right that's your contact distance greater contact distance gives you more time on the ground during which you can overcome gravity. And so in that sense, then greater contact distance is actually an asset. That's helping you solve the the, the problem. And your traditional technical model is basically all about shortening contact distance, right? It's like mm-hmm. high knee lift, swing leg retraction, get your foot as close to underneath you as possible. And then you're also trying to get off the ground quick behind you and so that you can like not have backside and get to the front side quick. And that's the, that's the traditional model. And that's all, it's all gonna shorten contact distance. Well, let's say at a given speed, shortening contact distance means you have less contact time, okay? So, you know, your velocity is like your, basically your contact, oh boy, here we go. Contact distance divided by contact time, right, is gonna be your average velocity during foot contact. And uh, so if you shorten your contact distance, you have less time on the ground at a given speed, which means that you have to produce greater vertical force. So even without running faster, you know, if you, let's say you were to like implement the technical model better, you are increasing the force demands by implementing the technical model, even at the same speed. Okay, so all that being said, the people that are able to use something close to the technical model it requires elite vertical force application you know so yeah at the highest level you got people 12 meters per second they're sprinting and then uh, you know using something close to the technical model let's say well that's going to mean that they have to get off the ground in you know at the highest level it's usually like 0.08 0.08 or 0.09 seconds Right. Like, like bolt was, I guess, 0.09 at his best, but he was six foot five. Like most of the sprinters are like more like 0.08 or, yeah, even, they're, you know, they're even, sub quicker, 0.08. Yeah, they're
1: even quicker off the ground than he is. Yeah.
0: yeah. And, and so they're able to do that, but they have the ability to get off the ground that fast. Somebody else may be nowhere near that mm-hmm. vertical force relative to, uh, to body weight to get off the ground that quickly. Yeah, I mean, you'll have people, let's say at the high school level, team sport, like they're on the ground for 0.13, 0.14, mm-hmm. you know? And so you can't then expect them to utilize like a short contact distance the way an elite sprinter does. That It's not a formula for speed for them. They're going to have to use a longer contact distance because that's going you know, to give them the contact time that they need. And so you have this give and take between, you know, using proper technique and shortening contact distance. You have a give and take between that and then we'll, okay, but longer contact distance gives us more time on the ground to work with. And different athletes are going to sprint their fastest at various points along that spectrum. And, it, it, and it's going to be dependent on the, again, like the physical talent and the physical ability that they've developed to bounce off the ground quickly. So the example I gave was, yeah, okay, instead of 0.15 meters you know, 15 centimeters in front, you strike 45 centimeters in front, which a lot of people might look at and be like, oh, that's too far in front. That's bad technique, you know, because you're probably, you know, generating a greater braking impulse so forty five centimeters in front, and then pushing behind you. I think it was eighty five. Or I think I this total, the total the
1: total stride. I remember the total stride being one point two. It was like the the fast person yeah. was one meter. And yeah, I guess regardless, um, forty five does seem like yeah. a little bit in front. Maybe it was less than that. I you know I trying to figure out how far think, in front. I think
0: I, I think it was forty five, <laughs> and then seventy five. But yeah, at, well, I mean, it anyways, doesn't matter. Like the, we'll, we'll, the yeah, example we'll post that that show notes, Yeah. Yeah. The example that I, that I gave doesn't really matter, but. So the point is, you know, a a person utilizing a longer contact distance, giving themselves more contact time Then I think the example I said, at 10 meters per second, now they have 0.12 seconds on the ground, and that might be a contact time that they're capable of utilizing. Whereas if they were using the, you know, the the more traditional uh, technique where they're shortening their contact distance to one meter, and now they have one-tenth of a second on the ground, they very well may not be physically capable of doing that. Yeah, and so with that in mind, you just can't force people into this model because it, there's a, a physical requirement that goes along with using a technique.
1: Yes, 100%. Um, and that you know that
0: applies that applies across all movements, but sprinting in particular, it's like we're you know you're really running into the limit of your ability when you're trying to sprint fast it's not negotiable. <laughs> the the physics are like, okay. the, you know, it's just very, very clear. And so then the key thing is with that contact distance, striking further in front, maybe pushing a little bit more behind, that's also going to influence what you look like in your swing phase. You know, this is probably going to be an athlete that has some more backside mechanics because they have to push behind themselves a little more. And they're probably going to have a little less front side because they're not, they're not gonna get as much swing leg retraction at the ground since they are contacting further in front. So they're not gonna look like the, the technical model, but that might be the way that they solve the problem of trying to sprint, you know, in that, in that example I gave of 10 meters per second. And, and yeah, I, you know, that comes from, for me it comes from observation. Of you know working with a variety of athletes, variety of levels, like oh yeah, this yeah. like this person is not going to sprint with the technical model, like they're not going to do it. You know, it's not going to work for them. I could teach them to do a B run, let's say, front side dominant swing leg retraction. I could teach them that, and they can probably execute that drill at six meters per second. Because at six meters per second, you can have a short contact distance and then still have ne- ne- uh, the necessary contact time. But as they start trying to move faster, they're gonna have to utilize more contact distance. And the more you see a variety of athletes, the more I like you have to be confronted with that fast. Yes, yes, you people, are confronted
1: with it, yes, daily.
0: <laughs> you just can't make you know, I, like I have a, a defensive lineman who's two hundred and sixty pounds, great, like good athlete, gonna play D one football, he's not gonna sprint like like a Staffa Powell, right? And there's there's not probably any value in trying to make him sprint that way or trying to even like push him in that direction. What I can do is try to develop his lightness on his feet. You know, do sprinting, do plyometrics, things of this nature, and try to give him some better reactive capabilities that will help him run faster. Trying to push him into frontside dominance, I think, is going to be you know. very fruitless pursuit so with all that in mind i mean it would be nice to say okay well an athlete with these characteristics will sprint this way and i think with you know a different set of Mm -hmm. characteristics will sprint that way and i would say in that department i mean we are very very early on in trying to discover those things Uh, you know i don't pretend to have answers there or like a lot of answers there. But, you know, just a simple example would be like uh, shorter athletes very well may have to utilize a strategy that creates more contact distance at very high levels. So I think uh, Shelly Ann Frazier-Price is a great example of that. You know, she's arguably the, the best female sprinter of all time and she's five foot zero So she's going high velocities. So, you know, if she was executing the technical model perfectly, her contact time would have to be so short.
1: Mm -hmm. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. With those short legs, like it just, yeah. Yeah. It's fun to watch those Um, shorter sprinters, by the way, the five footers who are that fast relative to time. I enjoy it. And, And
0: so if you, if you watch her sprint, she'll have a period like around the, the late drive phase where she's got like some big front side mechanics. Oh Yeah. The, like a brief moment in there where, where it's like, Oh yeah, there it is. But then the, the back 50 meters of the race, she is sort of descending into anterior pelvic tilt, lower knees in front, big backside mechanics. And, and you can look at that and be like, okay, well, yeah, that's the deceleration part- portion of the race. She like, pulls
1: away though for her, or she stays, so well, she maintains correct. for being five feet tall. Like I'm blown away by how well she maintains her top yeah. speed relative.
0: And, and so, yeah, you can look at it and be like, oh, well, that's, the, that's not the, the best part of a race. Like, you know, she, as she's accelerating, and she's hitting her top speed for, you know, maybe five to ten meters, that's where you need to look. It's like, okay, well, she's still out sprinting everybody else during this section of the sprint. And, and, and like you said, even pulling away from other sprinters. So she's apparently decelerating less than some of them. And so she is solving a sprinting puzzle in a way that works for her
1: yes for her exactly
0: and you can't it, you know if she as the fastest female ever or, you know one of the fastest females ever if she is utilizing that technique and she like you know front side dominance doesn't really work for her what business do i have trying to force it on a high schooler yeah you know it just it just doesn't make any sense and you know, and I guess the common argument would be like, "Oh, well, if she had better technique, she would run so much faster." <laughs>
1: that's that's I mean- where it all. St- that's the starting point, though. To me, is sorry. So I'll just say this really quick, and then I'll, if you have anything yeah. else, but it's like, it's where do you start? Do you start the model that someone who's looking at one or two things came with, or do you start looking at nature and? I I mean, we look at like, well, how did like the Blackbird plane, you know, come up? Like all these designs of planes come from watching birds, you know, like, and that's just one example. And to me, it's like, well, I don't, I'd rather spend time watching how a five foot individual was able to sprint so well and and even maintain her lead and pull away from some of the slow i mean i think there are a few people who are faster in those last 50 than she. i mean she's five feet tall but yeah. she does an amazing yeah. job for five feet tall shikari richardson too i'm like watching them I'm like that's i think you learn so much by watching watch usain bolt watch someone who's five feet tall well you know and so anyways sorry i just had to i i just I like, <laughs> that's good anyways if you had anything sorry to interrupt you or anything more on that train of thought there
0: i mean not i think i've made my point but like So, so yeah, so like height is one example where maybe this has an impact as we get to certain velocities on how people are going to, are going to sprint. I think another example would be like, you know, just elastic versus inelastic. So let's say, again, you you know, you're not going to see a a slow, heavy athlete in in Olympics and sprinting, but you might see them in other sports, right? You might see them in uh, American football. You might see them in basketball, whatever. Um, somebody who maybe their RSI isn't very high. And and so that's going to be another example where, okay, they don't have the physical ability to bounce off the ground very fast. So then when sprinting, they're not going to just like suddenly be able to manifest this, you know, (laughs) they're going to use the abilities that they have to sprint. Okay. So if I have a, uh, yeah, let's say I have a linebacker who's 240 pounds and has a 500 pound squat and his RSI is, you know, 2.5, you know, like more average. Um, I'm not expecting him to sprint with frontside dominance. He's going to have to utilize more contact distance um, in order to sprint his fastest. Again, he could use the technical model at some velocity. I don't think it's going to be, though, the fastest way for him to sprint. And... And so that's another example. I think another one would be, okay, if we look specifically at, like, are, we, are people strong in their quads versus their glutes or their calves, you know, like that, that concept. So I've had a, a number of athletes that have taught me this, where it's like, oh, yeah, this person is, like, really naturally good at squatting and, like, pistol squatting and stuff like this. And, um, oh, and so they do a high skip and you can see they like, they put their foot into the ground and just like pop up, you know, like you can just see them tapping into this quad strength. Well, they're the same athlete when they sprint.
1: Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah,
0: 100%. They're going to, they're going to use that when they sprint too. So they, you know, um, even in the acceleration phase, they're not going to do huge, big hip split and then swing leg retraction, driving the foot back into the ground. You know, they're going to load their quad more in their acceleration. They're going to use more braking and pushing, and that's going to be the way that they sprint the fastest. And, you know, you could still introduce, like, a concept of a big push and, like, striking back of the ground, but the degree to which they execute it is not going to be the same as... Uh, you know, somebody who hates to squat and has a huge deadlift and, and has, like, a sprinting background and they're really light on their feet. Like, those people are not going to sprint their fast, fastest in the same way. So, that's just a few examples of, like, how, the, you know, different abilities might affect how somebody sprints. But, again, that's all – it's just a few ideas I have. It's not, like, black and white thing where, I, you know, oh, let me just take a few measurements on you and then I'll just prescribe your ideal sprint mechanics to you. Like it's not, you know, it's 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 really just about being open-minded and letting understanding that people are gonna solve the sprinting puzzle in different ways.
1: Yeah, oh, a hundred percent. Even um I think it was Dan Fichter who had first said like the idea of strength dictating function. And as soon as you start to look mm-hmm. at it as someone who is solving the problem of sprinting to the best of their ability, given their strengths, and then using almost using their sprint form to say, Oh, this is your strength, this is your strength, this is your strength. Yeah. And then looking at it and going out from there versus I like the idea too of like, if you're going to change anything, you have to stimulate your organism. Like uh, Tommy John has said this, you have to stimulate your body to the highest level it's ever been to, to change anything. And it's like someone who's been blasting their quads their whole life in every way they move, every explosive way, every squat. Do you think a few B-skips are going to change that? It would have to be the most loaded B-skips of all time. And their structure would have to (laughs) change too, to be honest. A lot of these people's just structure there. You would talk about infrasternal angle, wide, narrow ISA. Like, there would be so much you would have to change to get them to do that. It just would be very fruitless. And, um, you know, back to something you had said. So, back to the beginning, I'll just have just a couple things here because I think this topic could be a three podcast, like a part one, part two, (laughs) part three. We could, you know, there could be so much here. Um, You know, with the vertical force thing, and I will say, I, I think a little bit differently on the vertical horizontal than I think you do, but I don't think it's that important for the sake of this specifically. Um, mm-hmm. But I do will say I, I totally agree with that vertical spike because you know, we both know that a faster sprinter at top end has that quick hit of vertical spike. You made you know, that post about it. And so I would yes. look at like if you had listed each athlete, zero through 100, what is your vertical spike ability, your ability to generate that spike? And let's say an athlete, yeah, the people they're studying and making these models after, they're 90, they're 95 out of 100 – and I get an athlete who's 60 out of 100, you know, I can't uh-huh. – the same way you would say, hey, go squat 400 pounds. Well, my max is 250. I can, you know, like, what's going to happen? Right. You're just going to get folded up. And what happens in sprinting is you just end up just don't do it. You just go to something else. Like, Or even if I try to squat, you know, if my good technique squatting ability is 250 pounds and you put 275 on the bar, maybe – You know, the first bit of the way up, I can do it, but then I have to bend and use my back to get the rest of it. It's the same thing. You go to where you have the strength and yeah. Yeah, So you're going
0: to be forced into something else.
1: Yeah. And and the speed will force you into something else. You know, anyone can make a three meter per second, like little Skippy sprint drill look pretty good, but hey, when, yes. that, when that vertical force spike demand goes up and up and up, yeah. I, um, uh, so I, maybe I'll, I'll try to make this, um, I guess, as, as practical as I can in the sense of, I had a few things written down with what you said, uh, but for team sport athletes. So I know you work with both track and team sport. To me, the question yeah. would be, uh, especially with like that vertical force spike, I believe, and I'm, I imagine you think the same thing, but let me know if not, like a lot of that comes from a more straightish swing leg retraction. Like you're not going to get massive vertical force with a more bent oriented leg. I think the studies from team versus sprinters have shown that. So my question would be uh, for team sport athletes, like how much do you care about some of those, like getting to some of those mechanics? Like I think um, we've talked on this podcast before about the ability to run differently at top end speed and be a little more didactic in your ability, Uh, but just thoughts on training team sport athletes versus track athletes in light of everything you're talking about there.
0: Yeah. So it's, again, it's about, it's mostly for me about just letting them sprint and getting them the exposure to it. I do, like I said, like I mentioned before, like I introduce concepts, you know? So I might have somebody do, uh let's say pushing a sled and like bounding and getting a big push and striking back at the ground. Like they might do that exercise. How much it translates to their sprint technique is gonna be very different and, and um you know across people, and so yeah, with the track athlete, maybe it's like well, we're definitely hoping long term to sort of have this acceleration model, and so we're gonna maybe like you know maybe try to plug this into the sprint more, whereas the team sport athlete it's like. You know they're not going to be executing a race yeah. in their sport. Um, I, I mean, you can make the case for like combine testing that you can mm-hmm. you know teach people how to execute more um, but but even that, I think it, it can easily be fruitless because you you need the physical development to go with it yeah and and you don't get to do the physical development with a basketball player that a track athlete's going to have you know like the track athlete is going to they're going to sprint or run or you know do plyos like 5 days a week during track season and they're going to dedicate their life to developing this ability and the basketball players are not going to do that. And so and so then like trying to plug this model into the you know the basketball player is just it's it's hard to really say that this is going to make up make much of any difference over time. So then my approach is more like Let's just try to develop the physical traits to the best that we can, and then and then just get the sprint exposure. You know, just let them let them practice, let them get reps. Um, but then, but yeah, just I just I don't put a lot of time into, into the the details of sprint technique with with team sport athletes. Um, again, it, every every situation is different. So I do one on one training. So I have the ability yeah. to you know, exist anywhere on the spectrum, right? So yeah, maybe there's cases you have people that come out and just completely have choppy steps in a linear sprint. It's like, okay, we need, we want to change something there. But even, and even in that case, like, well, why do they have choppy steps? Yes. Maybe, you know, maybe they're just really immobile. Maybe they, yeah, maybe they uh, don't really have any hip extension power to work with. And so, like, trying to get a longer stride, they can do it, but it's just going to take a long time, and they're not actually going to run any faster. So, yeah, I mean, there's not, like, a universal prescription, but, yeah, I don't generally have a lot of I'm – not, I'm not trying to fine-tune things with team sport athletes. But mm-hmm. um, It's more like, okay, well, yeah, let's get the sprint exposure. Let's jump and do plyos. Right, And so, between sprinting and plials, like we're trying to get that lightness on the feet and build that quality. Um, let's do some good strength training, let's make sure we're strong uh in, you know in hip and knee extension and and just try to you know physically develop that capacity over time, and then let's see how that changes you in terms of your speed and in terms of your jumping ability. Um, and then, yeah, like along the way, maybe there could be some efforts of, hey, I think you could alter this thing a little bit, like in in your sprint, like maybe, uh, like try to, you know, get a, like a big push during acceleration or, you know, whatever, like get a, you know, however you want to phrase that. I know you're not a big push guy, but, (laughs) um, you know, like you can introduce that concept, but, uh, yeah, like I said before, the, the degree to which people are actually going to implement it, uh, you just gotta be open-minded on it. So, yeah, whereas the the track athlete, I think if you have the long term mindset, you do have the you have the vision for the future of like, okay, you probably, you know, you're going to look something like this, Mm -hmm. we hope, over time. Um, But, yeah, even then, you have to recognize that it's connected their physical abilities. So, yeah, I guess that was a pretty gray answer, but. That's no, what I have to say. It,
1: it makes sense to me. It makes sense. Like for a track athlete. Yes, there's bandwidth. You need to eventually be in more so than this, this team sport athlete. And I guess, you know, there's probably like, Oh, how much does sprint technique matter for a soccer players an intervention and in, in robustness or whatever. But it does make sense to me that I would leave a more empty cup for a team sport athlete than a track athlete over a period of time, especially to, yeah. I mean, we have game speed. Um, we've had game speed podcast. How much the average play, especially. And being able to solve that problem, I, that seems like you're very, so you're very much like more along the lines of like a Jay Stray or Dan Fichter, create the qualities and then let them solve the problem. And yes, so exactly. much. yeah, yeah, yeah cool. Um, do you, um, you know, I, you had something too about like stomp the ground, like you know, when people talk about, you know, cause, cause okay, this would be a thing. All right. We, well, that athlete is running this way because their vertical force ability is 60 out of a hundred. And so, coaches will say, well, stomp the ground as if that will take that ability from 60 to 70, as if there was 10 points missing in my theoretical scale because they had never thought of stomping the ground before. (laughs) I'm like laughing as I say this. Anyways, um, so just thoughts on how to go about that process of an athlete developing that vertical force capability over time. you think it's something that just comes with the sprint exposure mostly? Is there other things like plyometrics or kind of everything? Uh, Thoughts on how that quality may improve, like maybe there's the the 1.2 stride usage may be shrinking over time. Just thoughts on that development of side or side of things.
0: Yeah, so I think um sprint exposure is like the biggest thing. And that's why I'm a fan of sprint volume actually, which I know you just had Tony Holler on, so it's <laughs> this, like a good good timing. <laughs> good good timing to sort of talk about that topic. <laughs> yeah, it's you know you gotta think about how many foot contacts are you getting throughout your throughout your training, throughout your year, throughout your career, right? And, you know, I think it's pretty clear, like, there's a reason that why track athletes have higher max velocity than other athletes, even, even other athletes who are, like, a similar size, right? So you can make the case of, like, oh, well, the sprinter is just really light, whereas the football player is not. But even when you have, you know, people who are the same, like, similar size, like, similar dimensions, you still have you know, uh, track athletes that at max velocity are much faster than, you know, most basketball players or, um, yeah, some football players, you know, uh, uh, yeah, outside of other sports. And it's, well, it's because they run a lot, you know? Um, and even at the, even at the level of like 400 meter runners, 800 meter runners, mile runners, I'm sure, you know, you have your track background. I'm sure, you know, like a lot of those type of athletes that train a lot of endurance and don't do tons of speed work will destroy most other athletes in a 200. You know, like their, their max velocity is still way higher. And, and so, I, you know, I think there's a big value in just, okay, how many thousand times have you bounced off the ground? And every, you know, every step you take in a, in a sprint or in a, in a you know, submaximal run, right, is, is a plyometric foot contact. And so, getting that exposure to a lot of running and sprinting over time, I think is like the biggest piece of the puzzle. Um, I do think that plyometrics are a great, um, a great complement to that. Um, specifically, the plyos where you're like faster off the ground, um, because it's you know it's more specific to that that quick vertical spike. Uh, so yeah, you know your your pogo's, your hops, your bounds, like you know that whole realm is is uh, probably an important piece of the puzzle as well um and then i do think strength training plays some role there it, but it just comes down to that that transfer question and you know keeping strength uh keeping strength in its place so to speak where it's first of all we want to have a we want to have an extensive sprinting background built up from childhood uh, before we even introduce strength so that your body is primarily adapted to speed, you know, as opposed to, as, as opposed to squatting. So first you want to have a, a big athletic background first. And obviously genetic talent helps there too. Mm-hmm. Um, and then when you add strength, you, you know, you add it in, relatively small doses where it's like a small piece of the program compared to the amount of, you know, sprinting and jumping you're still doing. And then you track the transfer over time by actually measuring things and then making decisions accordingly. So that's, you know, that's sort of like thousand foot view of it. Um, And then all, you know, all the decisions that can come along the way as obviously like, you know, there's a lot of diversity, but so that's where I get into that, you know, that strength versus speed and like managing those things. And uh, you know, for me, so I measure fly times all the time. Like pretty much if, a, if an athlete's healthy and I don't think they're gonna get hurt, um, then, then we're, we're measuring fly times like often because I wanna know what is the impact of your, your training right now on your speed. Um, and what is the and also like just what is the condition of your body right now and so that that guides decisions for me a lot, where I can say, all right, you know what we you know I, I can think of like one example, I have a, a softball player who was doing softball, was doing like kind of random workouts at school and like you know like a gym class type thing and then and then training with me um unfortunately like. Three times a month. <laughs> um, but so, you know, over this, like, had this stretch of a couple months where she got a lot stronger. Uh, her broad jump improved by six inches, which is like, okay, great, you know, strength, athleticism, boom, you know, like, let's celebrate. Conjugate method for the win, right? Mm-hmm. Um, her resistance sprint on the 1080 sprint was, uh, got significantly faster. I think it was three tenths faster in uh, over 20 meters, which is like pretty pretty good yeah. chunk of time. Yeah, that's real good. Her her regular 20-yard sprint was not any faster huh. after all of that. So you got you know, she got faster basically everything starting at the slow end of the spectrum up to a certain point, and then her sprinting, her actual regular sprinting hadn't changed. And so, you know, I look at Something like that, and I think okay, we need more sprinting exposure, um, spe- like unresisted sprinting exposure specifically, and and like max velocity specifically. Even though she's a softball player and not going to sprint past twenty yards in a straight line, because uh, max velocity does like bleed down into your acceleration, right? And so that's a case where she was naturally good knee bender, like could deep squat, like like barbell back, deep squat, no problem. Like looked great. And, and it's like, okay, but I can already see this trend of we're getting better at things that are relatively slow. You know, broad jump is not very fast. It is explosive. It is, you know, it's a power movement and it's like a good thing to improve, but it's still a lot slower. It's a, it's a much bigger time frame that you're going to use to generate that impulse um, then, then, even the beginning of a sprint, like the acceleration portion of a sprint. So there's still a big disconnect between broad jump and, and speed and, you know, or, or even just like the athleticism that you need for a sport that involves speed and quickness. So in her case, that would be an example of like, even though she was a young female athlete who didn't have a, she wasn't like super strong or anything, not like she was a, you know, one and a half bodyweight squatter or anything like that. Um, I think she would have been better off not squatting for a while Mm -hmm. or, or really even, even doing, um, split squats or, you know, like any type of deep knee bending strength exercise, I think she'd be better off without it and specifically trying to develop the speed end of the spectrum. And, and yeah, so I know that's like, Man, in the strength and conditioning world, that is heresy, right? <laughs> to say, like, a young female athlete, you know, should avoid this, this type of strength training. But I think it's legitimate. And, and I've even had, you know, uh, like, other examples of this where, um, I, you know, I've got a girl who's pretty talented right now, gymnastics background. And uh, starting out with, like, pretty good general strength from eight years of gymnastics but has transitioned over to track and field. And for her, I, you know, I initially started, she had not like done traditional strength training. She did, you know, pistol squats on a, a balance beam and stuff mm-hmm. like that. Um, you know, I, I initially started like, okay, we're going to sprint. We're going to jump. We're going to train across the spectrum. Um, and we're going to do some, do some like, you know, typical heavy strength training. And I think there was a negative impact, you know, in in the short term. And so, it turned into okay, well, we did that for a little bit. Let's let's actually back away from it now and see what impact that has. And uh and she got we stopped lifting, she got faster within a couple of weeks. And and not even just like one workout, but like consistently faster. And so then I was like, okay, so we gotta really keep an eye on this, you know, as we utilize strength training, like we've got to be strategic with what type we do, how much we do. And then we gotta, we, again, we gotta keep measuring over time so we know what's going on. And so now I've, I've, I've like pretty dialed in with her now and she's, you know, she's having a lot of success. And, uh, and, and so, I, you know, it's again, 13 year old female to say that there's some level of like not strength training that needs to happen, not a common opinion. But I'm sitting here taking the measurements and finding out, you know. Um, So it's not I'm not just arguing theory here. I'm like, look, this is what happened, you know. And we and and I've done it a couple times where, okay, you know, let's put let's put some squats in a couple times, like, and just see, and and then you know, fly times like get a little slower, and you you take them out, and they get a little faster again, and it's like, okay, so we're just trying to nudge your strength up over time, yes. But I'm always going to try to Get that balance and get that shift back to speed um and and that's probably somewhat unique for her because of her background you know um already super mobile and and more strong than most 13 year old girls right and so that's i'm not saying this is a general prescription for 13 year old females but in her case uh you know she doesn't have a sprint background she has a gymnastics background. And I think she needs to build up more sprint background and prioritize that before strength training is going to have more transfer. Uh, So, yeah, I think that, you know, the strength versus speed thing is just like a huge, huge topic. And uh yeah, I mean I could just rant all all day yeah. about that. Yeah, that's <laughs> so, yeah.
1: Yeah, I I tell you I have all these questions. We'll have to come back and and hit the back end of this question list here and a lot of it was about like um strength transfer to speed and things like that. You had some really interesting posts on that that I wanted to get into but you know, one of the things that popped up for me as you were talking about this is, yes, the need for more exposure and solving a problem. And what's interesting is to think like if we have a team sport athlete, let's say we want to give them some abilities kind of like a track runner to give them that ability to maybe get up in the open field, and open up a little bit, you know, or whatever. Yep. And we think that these like little neat little skips are the way to do it. To me, I'm like, well, what if you just had those athletes again? It is the T word. It's tempo. But I don't know. What if they just all ran four or five 200s every now and then? That is to me actually. The best natures with with hopefully not clodhopper Hopper shoes too, because that does impact your yeah, yeah. supinate and get feel the ground and feel that force coming back up. To me, I, it doesn't get a whole lot simpler than just that basic running on a flat fast track for a repeated period of time. You know, not being stupid, you know, not, we're not like going to go, Hey, we're going to go eight four hundreds and then it will be clodhopper Hopper running, but running right. that's at least fast enough to have a bounce to it and doing that with some level of exposure and you were saying, yeah, you used, I think you used some tempo or longer runs in your training. And to me, it seems like if I wanted to give someone who lacked that vertical spike, some more of that specific strength, it could be as simple as, Hey, let's just do a little bit more tempo running. And, you know, again, I do think I, I like, I like Tony's system. I like he, I feel like he gets a lot of that, out of the X factor, the plyometrics, that bounce type thing. I just mm-hmm. think it's like, well, how am I giving the athlete bounce for me? Tempo work to give me bounce. I like that. So yep. that's just, that was just my and, thought. And you're that. not alone in that yeah
0: um yeah so uh, you know i don't with the, the people that i work with in person i don't get a, much of a chance to like program for them because they have so many other things oh going yeah on. yeah but the i have had some cases where i'll have a track athlete who's like a blank slate and uh and in that case i'll I'll tell them hey go do it because you know they're going to run alone so i'm like i don't want to make something hard for them that like some brutal thing for them to, have to do. That. Let's go run 10, 100s at 15 second pace, you know, and with, and with like as much rest as you want, like, it's not actually conditioning. We're just trying to get some bounces off the ground.
1: Yeah. Bounces. That's so the key. Yeah. Yeah.
0: And we're using that to complement like a couple days of actual sprint training. Um, And then also with some people that I work with remotely. Um, Yeah. Like that easy running is one of the categories that I hit uh, consistently. Um, Yeah, so like the easy 100s or even like, you know, 30-second trail running or, you know, like that type of thing. Like, yeah, fast jog, 30 seconds times 10 reps. Like, just kind of, you know, walk for a minute between. It's not conditioning. It's just (laughs) accumulating, bounces off the ground to develop that lightness on your feet. And, okay, so going back to that vertical spike and how we get it, this is, you know, I think – You know, it comes from all this physical development that that we just talked about. Um, The big question, I'd say, right now, with uh, with all the research coming from Ken Clark, which Ken and I are like, we've talked and we're you know, I would say friends at some level as much as you can be via social media. Um, Like, we're cool and we've talked about this before. You know, he's got this research about thigh velocity and and uh, and downward foot velocity. And how you know elite sprinters have higher higher velocities um, during the swing phase, and so there's kind of this belief that's being popularized that you know that higher velocity creates that vertical ground spike, and I'm very skeptical of that. I think obviously, yeah, we have like these series of things that are all connected that that happen as people run faster. Um, I don't think that. We can intervene at the level of hammering the ground harder intentionally or like trying to create that higher velocity in the air. I don't think we can intervene there and create that vertical spike. Um, or at least I'm, I'm very skeptical of that being, you know, like generally the way that it's going to happen. I think it's much more from what we've talked about. You bounce off the ground, you develop something in your legs that is different. Mm-hmm than if you you know then if you are lacking all that elastic volume and there's something that is something structural that changes and it's not conscious it's not about conscious effort and I think you know the running volume having a positive impact is like one of the signs of that because we're not talking about high effort running and we're and we're and we're uh we're t- also talking about athletes that don't do a lot of high effort running right like even like we talked about some of the longer uh the longer race competitors they you know they develop a quality in their legs over time that that other athletes don't have and i think that's really what facilitates all those other components of of uh of sprinting like all those other kinematic things that we can look at like the thigh velocity and the downward foot velocity so, yeah, I mean, I think you can definitely, you can easily have, I've seen it, uh, like a cross country runner could have a higher RSI than a basketball yep. player.
1: Yep. I've seen that too. hundred percent.
0: Yeah. <laughs> like cross country runners have bounce in their legs, you know, because, well, that's their sport. Yes. They bounce off the ground and it, and it's, uh, de- and so, yeah, they develop that capacity and it has nothing to do with them trying to hammer the ground hard.
1: Yeah. They're not thinking, or, run, they're not running their race thinking hammer the ground, hammer the, hammer the ground. Right.
0: Right. right. And um and 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 like yeah has nothing to do with the front side mechanics or or anything of that nature they're just getting a lot of exposure to bouncing off the ground and so so yeah i would say like looking at the sort of the research now that you know particularly like that ken clark has come out with um i i have a little different interpretation of it than than he does um and again i've talked about with we're like we largely agree but then he's sort of like but yeah, these I do think that you know this thigh velocity plays a role, and I'm like, well, oh, I can't say it doesn't play a role. I just don't think it's the place that we can change. Yeah. Like, we don't start by changing that. I think we start by changing the physical capacity, and then yeah, starting with strength, you know, the, the, working the, out the, the strength. thigh velocity comes from that as you develop physically. Um, so yeah, that that was. I wanted to get that out there because, like, when you talked about how do we get the vertical ground spike, I mean, there's sort of this this growing belief now that we get the vertical ground spike by changing technique, and I don't think that's really true. That is, of course, my opinion, but…
1: Yeah, I I guess I'll I'll say I, that you know not to um, not to make this a three hour show. I guess I'll just say my my thoughts um, bouncing literally, no pun intended, bouncing off what you said is I I do think that a straighter leg, you know, like a track person's leg that's a little straighter coming down to the ground has more potential energy than like a bent leg to to mm-hmm. create a vertical spike. That makes sense to me. And actually, I haven't read those the the Ken Clark research um, specifically with that, but it makes like the idea of angular velocity and Darian Barr has been here talking about rotational. Velocity and that all makes sense to me. I guess maybe I yeah. just like I like stories. I think things that are really simple, like a story or visual, are helpful. So I like it was. um I think a Norwegian sprint coach had a really good paper that I was sent. And it was talking about thinking about sprinting as we talked about a wheel, like a hula hoop that you're spinning. Like spin the hula hoop, so it's spinning in there, and then it bounces. It's like a hula hoop bouncing and spinning along the ground. Like take a hula hoop sure. and spin it, and it bounces along the sidewalk. Well, it's like, well, how how can I get that hula hoop to go faster? Um, well, I could spin it faster, but the spinning it faster, it's not just the front, it's the back, it's the whole wheel has to spin faster. And the whole wheel mm-hmm. spinning faster is not just because if I just stomp my front leg down farther, what happens to the back leg? What happens to the rest of the body? There's more going on than just, and again, it's kind of like the same to me. That's the same idea as my squat max is 300 310s on the bar. You're my coach, and you just say, just push harder, Joel. You know, it's like, I can't. Right. I, I, this <laughs> right. is as much as I got, coach. Um uh-huh. so, but then you could also increase the tensile ability of that wheel. That wheel could have a higher if it's like a really like, I don't know, like a kid put a kink in it, and it's like I I mean that would mess up the wheel, but it's like, you know, it's like really real soft. Then it, if you put more tensile, like vibrate, you know, um just that it was more like a steel tensile grade, maybe it could bounce hard. But you don't get that through telling somebody. You get it through repetition of the fascial elastic system, the structure, the way we yes. handle ourselves. And to me, yeah, yeah, tempo or or like repeated plyometrics or whatever you're going to do to increase that and improve that. And again, I do think there is something. I do think tempo does help an athlete to in concert with the structure also make the technical adaptations on their own. That would be my belief. I don't think that sure. you could just tell someone to do the technique without that. Ad- app- I just feel like nature makes it simple, you know, like just doing <laughs> it. It's just, it just doesn't have to be that hard, you know, like just go on. And, anyway, that's just my thought. I don't know. Anything. Um, do you have anything with that? Uh, just cause I think we'll, we'll round down kind of with that. I, I'll say the rest yeah, of the I mean, time.
0: I just, I think the hula hoop is an example. Even just like, if you think about bouncing a ball, um, like say you threw a ball forward and it was going to bounce like, um, and you had a, a highly inflated let's say basketball or you had a flat basketball well the flat basketball is going to slow down and move at a much slower pace and not going to go as far versus an inflated ball it's like the same kind of concept you physically change the object and that influences how it's going to travel across the ground you know mm-hmm. um, yeah same things like the hula hoop with the kink in it or whatever or versus if it's more stiff yeah, that was the only thing that really came to mind. But yeah, I think we're pretty aligned on the concepts we're talking about. Yeah.
1: Yeah. It's, I mean, again, this the, the sprint step, there's so much complexity in sprinting. Literally, I could talk about this all day. Like, even what you're saying, like, some of the qualities that lead someone to a different hip height, ground with than another. Like, I've just, like, I'm honestly just even tacking them on in the recent months, thinking, like, okay, what's well, its body shape, its power in one tenth of a second. It's like you know a rotational ability. Like there's so many. And we you're right. We are still learning about so many of these yeah. things, versus just um you know just looking at just one thing. It it is this complex interaction. So there is a lot to talk about. But it's just cool when well the answer doesn't have to be that complex. It could just be you know it could it could literally just be a few things just done savagely well you know in the process right. of natural like, development. Yeah.
0: The the training solution might end up being pretty simple. But yeah, I, it's something I've said in some of my posts is like, what, what do I say? The complexity of the human body and the diversity between people, that like forces us to open our mind to like different solutions. You, like it's just really, really difficult to be like, this is the technique that we have to use. If you think about like how different people really are and how complex the body is, like yeah, like, like you were saying, all the different you know, all the different things happening in the body during sprinting. Like, there's so many factors there that you, yeah, it's just, it's hard to, yeah, like, one, you can't force people to model, but two, you just can't, you don't know things. <laughs> you know, you just, you can theorize them and you can kind of test them out, but like, you just don't have this black and white answer of, you know, this is the right way to sprint and this is not. It's just, it's just, um, yeah, endless endless exploration yeah yeah
1: and we all we all can kind of explore however far you know if you want to you can go infinitely deep on some of these rabbit holes but i i what we covered today i just i love talking to you dan i love how your mind works and how you put not just the ideas out there but you have like the data points behind it linking the research behind it and i love your practical approach to all this stuff so hey i know we didn't cover everything today but awesome talking to you for uh, this conversation, Dan and you know, anything else before we get out of here, um, either any closing thoughts, well, obviously most people know where they can find you, but uh, different pages you run or any, any products you want to talk about. So uh, before we get out of here, anything you want to share on that level?
0: Um, just one more thing. I want to say that like I do address sprinting technique in my training and I'm not trying to criticize that practice. I um, I just, I just do it in a way that, like I said, is experimental. And I'll even tell a kid, like, hey, look, we're going to try this and see what happens. I don't say this will make you faster. You know, it's just a sort of an open-minded approach. And then, you know, maybe, like, less time and effort put into it than other people, but it's not like I just ignore it. I'm not just, you know, telling people to sprint and just not caring how they do it at all. Um, So, yeah, I just want to make sure I'm not, like, shifting too far to one side of that debate you know yeah i uh speed.science zero on instagram is the speed the speed science account that would be the place for most of this content i do have some uh other things on youtube which is just uh just jump science i think on youtube um yeah sometimes some like longer form content comes out on youtube um and then, yeah, people have been asking for a speed science program for years, so I'm, I'm trying. My <laughs> issue is I start thinking about making a speed program, and I just, I just run into, like, all the different types of people and how the approach might need to be a little different, and then how to solve that issue, and I just, you know... I'm just not very good at like, oh, yeah, we'll just make an eight week program. So <laughs> like, you know, it's um I, I tend to like want to have like some really thorough solution, which is very difficult to do. Yeah. So that's why it hasn't happened. So, yeah, maybe there'll be a speed science program sometime <laughs> soon. We'll see.
1: Yeah. To, to <laughs> honor the complexity of the body in a in a program is is not an easy. Yeah, task, it's so. tough. Yeah. I, yeah. It's I a good thing the- you said that with the technique, too. I was going to call this show. Dan Box says technique doesn't matter. That was going to be the title, so I'll just change that now. So.
0: <laughs> just throw me under the bus. It's fine. I can take it.
1: <laughs> oh, man. All right. Well, hey, awesome having you on know the show, Dan. Thanks again.
0: Yeah, it was very fun. Thanks. That wraps up episode 337. Thank you so much for being here, and we'll see you next week.